You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. Anne McCaffrey created the Dragon Riders of Pern series. Todd McCaffrey is her son, whose novel Dragon Blood, set in the world of Pern, was a New York Times bestseller. They've co-authored Dragon's Kin and a new novel, Dragon's Fire. Welcome to the program, Todd and Anne. Thank you. Thank you. Anne, I'd like to start with you. Tell us a little bit about subverting the fantasy cliché of the, of the dragon with a science fiction creation. What made you do that? Andre Norton, uh, a, f- a friend of mine who has s- sadly passed away, uh, always said she thought dragons had a bad reputation in the West, and that's true enough. So I decided I make, would make God, dragons the good guys, and now oh, where would they be ecologically useful? Ah, on a planet which had a mycorrhizoid spore fall on it every 250 years, and you had to burn it out of the skies or burn it when it hit the ground, if it did, uh, because it was ravenous and it would just gorge itself on anything vegetable, animal, not mineral. But uh, it was you just had to get rid of it. So I decided if I was having dragons, I would make them fire-breathing because searing this stuff in the air was much easier to do. And they would be chewing a phosphine-bearing rock. And as every kid who's taken junior high science knows, phosphine gas ignites when it hits oxygen. So there I had it. Now, Robert Heinlein used methane gas, but not the same principle for his dragons. And then I thought, you didn't want something nearly 30 feet long just running around without any kind of control. So I decided that uh, to take the ducklings uh, analogy, and the dragon bonded with some human. He was always presented with 30 or 40 kids, and he picked one with whom he could bond, and the bond was indissoluble. If the dragon died, the rider wanted to, and if the rider died, the dragon committed suicide. So it was a very firm bond, and uh, because, of course, dragons' tongues are forked, they used mental telepathy instead of speech, which means it made sense. Um, the humans didn't have to learn another language, neither did the dragons. Although one of the things I find about Stargate is that on every planet they land, they all speak English. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a little bit about how things for you as a writer and a science fiction writer back when you created this is 1967 so it's been yeah. a while so yes talk. it has well um, I got a chance to go to Damon Knight's uh, Milford Writers Conference and there were about 25 to 30 writers there we each submitted a story and each story was criticized by this group all in the field, so you didn't get stupid remarks, and you did get a lot of helpful encouragement and suggestions. May I recommend to anybody there who wants to be a science fiction writer to send their stories to Writers of the Future at um, Author Services in L.A. I've just come from uh, their annual 23rd awards ceremony, and the new group of writers was fascinating. One came from Uzbekistan and another from Nigeria. And Todd, there was somebody else represented. 
Well, we had somebody who who um, couldn't be informed that she'd won, and she was a finalist uh, because she was recovering from Hurricane Katrina. Yeah, uh, there were there were several. We had uh, we had one from the Ukraine as well, didn't yes, we? Yes, I think yeah. so. Yeah. So uh, we're getting around, and they give you a week's uh, network re- uh, research, and you, you have established writers like Katie Wentworth and uh, Tim Powers come and give you lectures and sort of walk you through the basics. You get to talk to editors and publishers so you know a little bit about everything. And presumably, if you've won, uh, the story does get published, and every story that comes into their offices gets read, So, which is usually a step forward. A, a busy editor in one of the magazines doesn't have time to do all the reading that comes into him. And some of it he doesn't want to do, but uh, <laughs> at least now we're all getting typewritten scripts. When you started back in the 60s, the field was dominated by men. You mentioned Heinlein, mm-hmm. Asimov, Bradbury, Clark. had a very different feel, and women didn't weren't particularly well treated well, in that science fiction, were well, they? You had uh, Andre Norton, who got in there anyhow, although I meant remember arguing with a 16-year-old, pimples on his skin and all, that Andre Norton had to be a man because she wrote so well. And I said, and I, have you conceded that I am a woman? And he had to. And I said, and I write well, don't I? (laughs) But he would not believe that Andre Norton was female. And i just come from spending a weekend with her, so I really did know. But um, there were several others. Uh, Kate Wilhelm. Kate Wilhelm, uh, Katie Wentworth. Uh, oh, back in those days, um, Judith, Mar- Judith Merrill, too. Yeah, and Marion Zimmer Bradley. But uh, how were women portrayed in the fiction itself? Ugh, honest to Pete, it was horrible. The only one who did decent females was um, J.W. Schultz, and he had Agent of Vega and a couple of other with a good character. But Heinlein's women, I don't recognize the species at all. I never did tell him, but then <laughs> he didn't need to know that either. But I just, um, Gordy Dixon was terrible with his women. I said, Gordy, why don't you write better women? Because he does marvelous plots, bless his soul. And uh, he says, well, I don't know that many. And he was rather shy and gawky, but he's handsome too. Um, he said, well, I just don't know any women. I said, yes, you do. You know every one of the female participants of this um, convention or Milford? Milford. Uh, Virginia Kidd Blish, who turned out to be my agent. Uh, Kate Wilhelm. Uh, Sonia. Dorman. Dorman. And there were one or two others. And, uh, oh, uh, Carol uh, Emschwiller. Mm-hmm. And I said, you've got the brassy ones like me, and you've got the shy ones like Carol. You can do it. He said, I hadn't thought about that. I said, well, you just step behind their eyes and see things from their di- uh, end. Did he do that? His women did get better. Dragon and the George, I think his women were better. Yes, they yeah. were. And that's pertinent to this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a little bit about some of your influences. Your influences aren't the normal science fiction influences. I, I think that you, one of the people that I, first started me reading was when I heard, got a, Basil, a record of Basil Rathbone reading the Jungle Book. Oh, yeah. Well, I was brought up on Kipling's Jungle Books. Yeah. And Rudyard Kipling. I still reread Kim just for the sheer luxury of listening to a master storyteller wend his way. 
And, and you were also very interested and influenced by Austin Tappan Wright. Yes, I did. I read his book, Islandia, when I was 14 and very impressionable. Now, one of the things that you do quite well is to create a place that's so real that the readers, both of you done this, that, that, that the readers can visit it, go back and visit it in their minds. Once you've created it as a writer, they can go back and visit it in their minds. Tell us a little bit about how, how you do this. Todd, you actually came to the world of Pern fully. It was already a place in your mind, wasn't it? Um, well, I had visited it several times through Mom's books, uh, but but actually, you know, with much trepidation, really going there and writing, that's that's a scary thing. You know, you're playing with a an international best-selling series. Thank you, dear. Uh, yeah, and, and you know, <laughs> written by none other than a science fiction Hall of Famer, Grandmaster. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want it to go to her head. Um, but uh, it, was, it, it was actually very interesting. One, one of the things that, that made it possible for me to write on Pern is Mom always leaves questions. She answers the, the basic questions of her books, but there's always something new coming up that makes us go, well, what happened to? Um, and so when I started looking at doing what became Dragon's Blood, the, the questions I wanted to answer were, what was the reason for the ancient rooms uh, in Bendenware? Um, and, and why did we occasionally get an egg that wouldn't hatch? Um, and sadly, you know, what was the story behind the, the young rider and dragon that Falar uh, described as once being found encased in, stu- in, in solid rock? Um, so, you know, it was, it was mining, <laughs> literally, um, it was mining well-laid ground, as it were, and, and following some of the tenets that are, that are behind what Mum's done in the Dragon Riders of Pern. Well, I allowed Todd to do so because he'd grown up with an atmosphere of Pern, and I often uh, asked him to read scenes to see if they they stuck. But I cheated a bit on Pern. It's Earth-like. That's what Pern means. Parallel Earth, resources negligible. And my kid (laughs) brother thought of the the real message in the acronym. And so he sort of... What is the real message in the acronym? The real message is, is it, wasn't it planetary Earth-like resources? No, negligible? parallel, oh. parallel. Okay, well, parallel, unfortunately, for some people, means there's another Earth circling on the other side of the sun. Oh, That's why sorry. I tend to oh, use planetary oh, yeah. Earth-like. But yeah. uh, Mom's little brother, Kevin, who for whom The Smallest Dragon Boy was written, um, came up with the answer, uh, parallel Earth resources negligible, or as I say, planetary Earth-like resources negligible. At any rate, he did know all of that, and... Uh, he was. I would be right there in case he needed help, and we had, we sorted out a few things that I had never considered before. But this active mind across from me considered them, and he's made books out of them. And my my son, the author, the bestseller. <laughs> well, I think <laughs> it's a hoot. some some credit really must go to Bill Fawcett and the people at Mayfair Games. Yes. Um, it, it's sort of, you know, Mom had a. a, a bunch of very nice books, and yet some people said, well, how about if we make a board game out of it? And that that resulted in a bunch of questions that had never been asked before. And as I was an inveterate board gamer, Mom said, you go answer these questions. Uh, and that sort of led further on. So, so the names of, of the minor holds um, 
you know, I, I, I came up with a list of names and mom does her usual thing. She says, that's nice, dear. And uh, <laughs> oh, see, she, there's two versions of that's nice, dear. There's that's nice, dear. I'll put up with it. And there's that's nice, dear. I like it. And, and <laughs> learning to distinguish the two has been, a, been, been the task of a lifetime. Um, Yours and mine. Uh-huh. But, but uh, of course, I, you know, I, I grew up with this, and, and uh, I am the, the Todd of, of uh, the, I got the wrong word, of Decision at Duna. And when mom was going to dedicate it to me, it was really going, originally, at, here I was, age 12, it was going to be to my darling son, Todd. And I thought, all right, here I am in seventh grade. Everybody's going to see this book. I'm going to die in school. So we, we settled on to Todd Johnson, of course, which has worked out much better. Yes. One thing that you've done is dragons tend to be uh, creatures of fantasy, and a lot of people actually tend to think that your novels are fantasy, but they're not. They're science fiction. No. Everything's pretty hardcore. You yeah. know from the beginning that yeah. this is a different well, world. Well, I use Newtonian logic, which makes a lot of things easier. Oh, well, that's very interesting. Tell me how you use Newtonian logic. I, I like that idea. Uh, well, I don't use magic, and... Uh, the physics that we take for granted here, I used there as well. And um, oh, a bunch of stuff. I, I couldn't go into the details. It was when I, I thought of the pern, I thought myself there. So I was seeing it through my eyes and using what I needed to describe it and cheating also by using Earth-like substance. Well, why not? There, there are many of them out there. And uh, then I sort of furnish them with landscape and weather and all kinds of creepy crawly things and <laughs> we saw a guy moving into the uh, airport uh, hotel the other day and he had one of the usual haul alongs but the haul along had a haul along and then the, the hall second one had a third it's like the jungle bugs on pern that i described <laughs> well well you you were lucky in that you wanted to write for analog which yeah. is John at the time John Campbell Jr. was was editor, uh, and you know that's science fiction, science fact. So in order to get something like the dragons on Pern in there, you had to be really careful with your science. And of course, John came along and, and, and he did help me. He yeah. helped a lot about you know the boron crystalline structure of the dragons and yeah. the phosphine gas. And uh, he he decided at the time that that uh, they flew the way we thought bumblebees used to fly, which is they only fly because they think they can. Um, and that's been used later on, actually, in um, Skies of Pern, mm -hmm. which, which got to be very interesting. But, but that's part of the reason that it's got a science fiction background in it. It got originally published in a magazine that only published science fiction. Dragons have an interesting history in literature, but you've really made a, a, a cornerstone in it. But I'd like you to tell me a little bit about were there other dragons or portrayals of dragons that you had thought of or encountered, even that you just wanted to subvert? No, I don't think there were. I, I work with horses, and I have cats and dogs in the house. And I've always gotten along well with animals, so I decided I'd just have the one I wanted. Now, dragons are not horses, although they look more like horses than reptiles. But uh, you can get closer to a dragon than you can to a horse. Horses are smart within their own boundaries, but dragons are very smart. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about, because this is something that I've noticed when, it, when I read your books. There really is, people who have pets 
and have a connection with their pets are going to get, uh, I think, a bit more out of your books than somebody who's never encountered a pet. So, uh, so this was really based on your feelings about your pets. Yeah, and also I went. To, I had a fan on uh, uh, dolphins research in uh, Grass Key, Grassy Key, Florida, and I was coming to a convention. I've forgotten now where. Uh, and he said, why didn't I stop by? And he'd see that I got a, a swim with a dolphin. And oh my word, it, it, it included everything I thought of for dragons. So I knew that my dragons were viable because there was something swimming around in our oceans that's very much like a dragon. And it was, <laughs> it was lots of fun. Of course, my daughter came with me because she wouldn't have me doing anything that dangerous by myself. And we swam with uh, two dolphins, a, a mother and a son, and then they switched partners. And I got the son and she got the uh, mother. And that, that was eerie too, because the, the trainer said that rarely happened. So maybe they, they wanted to tell me more about dragons, but it sure uh, supported everything I'd s said about the, the rapport you can develop with a big animal. And, and that inspired you to go on to do Dolphins of Pern, didn't yes, it? Yes, it did, yeah. yeah. One of the things that I think that is very interesting is this core concept of your books of the bonding with the dragon. A and this creates a, a couple of opportunities. One opportunity it creates is to give you a chance to turn the dragons into characters. Mm -hmm. Tell, how do you create an, a character out of a huge, non-human reptile? Well, when you've ridden a lot of horses, it's very easy to do. Um, I've owned quite a few myself. Mr. Red was my uh, Irish draft hunter, and I've had several thoroughbreds. And they they have personalities of their own, and you have to deal with some of their quirks as well. Uh, Ed used to have a hairy knicker attack if he saw a tractor anywhere near him, and he was very difficult to manage. But uh, he would let kittens sleep in his manger and sleep on his back, and well, they're, you know, they, they have individual traits, and I could just transfer that to dragons. Todd, how do you work when you create dragon characters? Ooh, that's difficult. Uh, most of the dragon characters I've created recently have all died horribly, so maybe I'm not working very well. I'm, I'm actually looking at, at some dragon characters. Um, we have a new one with Sereth in, uh, Dragon's Fire, and we, we have some that are, that are ongoing from Dragon's Blood that get to go on. It's difficult. Uh, it, it's, it's quite interesting. Dragons are dragons. Right? You know, it's sort of, they're a very special, they're, they're even, I, I would say even more special than a, than a pet or, or anything like that. There's a bond that's, uh, well, dragons are, are, are freedom, are, are an immense responsibility and an immense privilege all rolled into one. Um, and, and I think that's what, what I tend to strive for, is to show people the amazing thing that a dragon is. I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about this bond. I want to explore this a bit because it, it, in some senses it almost becomes like a chaste love relationship. Well, it is. Um, the connection, the affection between dragon and riders is total. And it's like having... A, your own guardian angel and 
you can say anything to it, and it responds. And uh, Jackson, for instance, is is uh, playful and sometimes quite mischievous. And Rameth is very pompous, uh, which her writer isn't. And Amenth, who is Falar's dragon, is the old warrior type. He worries about his people in his flight, his wing, and he worries about his mate, Rameth, but damn sure no one else is going to mate her. <laughs> and um, he's always talked to Lessa. Not every dragon will do so, talk to another dragon or another pr dragon's person. And um, When you create these characters and these dragons, it gives you an opportunity to do something with your literature that you can't do when you're writing, say, about you know a, a boy and his dog or, yeah. or something. What are you get trying to get at with that? What is the analog in our world, and and why choose dragons as a way to get at that analog instead but, of just writing about it straightforwardly? Because they're big. Wouldn't you like a 30-foot dragon as your best friend to get away from the freeways? <laughs> I never appreciated quite so much what people said, thought about the freeways. I've been on them now for three, three nights and days, traveling hither, thither, and yon. Uh, but it's a, an exclusive partnership and one that is very rewarding. I mean, how many of us have talked to our cat or our dog or our horse, just because it's another living being and intelligent enough to, to know we are addressing it. Um, but dragon is even, dragon is like your other skin, your other soul, and you can never be alone with a dragon. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Todd, when you talk about dragons and you're writing about them, one of the things I noticed about, about the latest book is that it deals with um, it with the shunned. The, there's trap miners. You're getting into the lower economic half of the ladder of Pern, and it's an interesting way to talk about things that are happening in our world, isn't it? Yeah, there there was um, it, it, it. You know, when you write a book, you have one view of what what you're trying to say, and and when somebody reads it, they get an entirely different slant on it. Um, one of the things I was looking at with the shunned was was the basic question of, of what is crime and punishment? Um, how do we handle it? How do we handle it here? Uh, how is it handled on Pern? Uh, in the second interval, I should I should say, because Pern's got 2,500 years or turns of history in it. Um, so clearly in 2,500 years, things change. And with the shunned, uh, what, I, what I wanted to look at was, was the, the, the underside, as it were, and, and see what we were going to do with that. It was a problem coming into a pass. Um, Mums brought them back up in, or, or has had them in uh, uh, Renegades of Pern, and also in, uh, again, we got them in Skies of Pern. Mm -hmm. Not so much in All the Weirs, as I yeah. recall. Um, so th th they're around. I mean, it's, it, it has to be a whole planet. The, the nice thing about Pern is it's been funny. When, the more I look at it, the more I realize it's been unexplored. There, there are brilliantly drawn parts of Pern, but there's a whole bunch that's just not there. So there's a lot of room uh, in, in which to go places. And, and that's one of the reasons with Dragon's Fire, I went with the Shun and, and 
looked at that other issue. And we're going to go, you know, look some more. But with dragons, I think the other thing that you said, Mom, was, was unconditional love. That was one of the big things. An mm-hmm. amazing, creative, powerful, unconditional love was, was that bond. Uh, but it can be broken. I mean, because Kalara was pretty much much about to lose Wirenth yeah. before the Battle of the Queens. Dragons also have a history of being, well, uh, satanic. And <laughs> <laughs> Milton created Satan as the Lucifer is the great dragon, mm-hmm. and he proved to be the most interesting character in the whole <laughs> book. So I'm wondering if, if there was a bit of that for you. Exploring something that's so powerful and potentially destructive gives you a, a little more, makes a more entertaining character. Yeah, I think so. Uh, you certainly want, wouldn't want to cross a dragon or hurt his rider. He'll come after you and tear you to shreds. No, he won't. There's only one time, as you say yourself, when that's a dragon right. would, do something, I beg your pardon. Would, would, would do something like that, and that's when it's freshly hatched and doesn't know any better. Yes. I don't know what a dragon would do if somebody purposely harmed its rider. That's a really interesting question. I always thought that, that the, the dragons of uh, old European mythology were powerful creative forces uh, that the, the religious forces were not really happy with because they were individual creative forces. Uh, and religion at the time wanted people to be pretty much following what was said in the pulpit. Uh, and so I think at some level what you have with your dragons is saying to people, you get to be yourself. You get to have your own power, and, and you can love it, and it can be huge and creative and do good things. Well, as you know, there is no religion on Pern, and there are no wars. <clears throat> Excuse me. I take it that's no coincidence. Well, when I was began writing Pern, I think we had five or six wars going on at the time, ma- mainly religious. And although I was a choir singer for 18 years, I decided that was one thing Pernese didn't need, was organized religion. This doesn't mean they didn't have uh, ethics and morals and keep to the good, okay, the Ten Commandments, which are basically very helpful, but not with pomp and ceremony and superstition. And I have been uh, reprimanded for that lack, but it's my world. I can put on it what I want. Yeah, her rules. (laughs) (laughs) You get to play on it, but it's her rules. You use science fiction, in a sense, to to speak to our world, and one of the things that I think you speak to, uh, well, obviously, the, the lack of religion is, is certainly something that, that science fiction allows you to do. I'm wondering what else, what were the other reasons that you pursued this as a science fiction novel, say, as opposed to a fantasy novel? Because fantasy, at the time when you started, there was a pretty big market for fantasy, yeah, yeah, wasn't there? Yeah, there was, yes, with Andre Norton and Catherine Kurtz and Tolkien was real big. Yeah. He, the Lord of the Rings was yeah. just bursting out of the gate. Yeah, well, Todd paper. read, I don't know how many copies, dead. I read The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit at least 17 times. <laughs> we knew what to get him for Christmas, a new set of the series. And I must say that the three movies were incredible. Let's talk a little bit about the movies. We've seen a few dragons in the movies, and, and they are come, they've come pretty close to getting the special effects right. Yes, they have, and they're closer now. So tell us, uh, is there a, a Pern movie in the works? There is indeed. Now it's going to, going to be a feature film. Right. Oh, good, good, good. So who? Do, what do we know about it at this point? We know that the uh, 
producer's name is Steve Hoban, who has already won an, an Oscar for his short subject, Ryan. Okay. Yeah, Steve's, Steve's uh, Copperheart Entertainment. He's also well-known for the Ginger Snaps films. Oh, okay. Oh, those are good. Yeah, they, they, pe- people love them a lot, and he's, he's a really nice guy. The Dragon Riders of Pern have been optioned on and off since 1984 or maybe even earlier. And this time we were very careful. Um, Steve had actually been, been interested in it over a decade ago, but it was under option at the time. And when it came back time to look for somebody, we, uh, we, we interviewed everybody who was, who was interested and, and actually made a choice. And he's very involved uh, with us. And you know it's been it's been a long conversation. It will continue to be a long conversation. Um, as you probably know, film is hit and miss, and and just because you've got an option doesn't mean you've got principal photography going yet. So there's there's a ways to go, um, but we're very hopeful. We think this is going to work very yeah. nicely. One of the things I think that made the Lord of the Rings movies work so well was that he did change the story a bit. And there, there weren't major changes, but there were there were some changes. I know that certainly upset the uh, um, the fan community mm-hmm. until they actually saw it. Yeah. And so I'm wondering, are are you going to be okay with uh, changes in your story? Depends on what the changes are. There are looking at film now for a while. Uh, I've decided there are two parts to an adaptation. One is to get the spine of the story. And the other is to get the heart of the story. And I think Jackson and The Lord of the Rings got both. Uh, some of the Harry Potters have just sort of got the spine of the story and have kind of just missed the heart. Um, and I'm hoping that we'll see both. What, what seems to make a really good film is that everybody who's working on it has read or has a copy in their back pocket of the work in question. And with that level of love, everybody is working to, to pull it to be the best that they, they can possibly imagine. One of the things you did quite well um, is you use speculative fiction to explore emotional issues, and the the ship who sang, I think, is is the 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 prime example of that. Tell us a little bit about this story and, and the emotional issues that you were undergoing at the time when you wrote it. Well, thank you for asking about ship. It's my favorite story, and I think probably the best one I've ever written. It was in honor of my father who had fought three world wars and died of tuberculosis he picked up in Korea. And I, as the daughter in the family, was not ignored, but he didn't think I would make much of myself. And he had the usual full military funeral with taps and the coffin-covered, flag-covered coffin and a volley of rifles which were not, uh, they should all crack off at the same time, and they didn't. And my older brother uh, thought a colonel wouldn't have liked that. (laughs) But The Sound of Taps, uh, I haven't been able to listen to it ever since my father died back in 1954. And I want to do a story for him. And so I created um, Helva, the brawn ship and had a brain, she was a brain ship, and the brawn was some that went along with her to do the off-ship work. And they too had a, a quite an intense relationship, but he could never see her or touch her. 
uh, you know, the one woman he's never been able to lay. <laughs> oh, excuse me. And uh, <laughs> at any rate, they did have an extremely intense emotional contact. And when he is killed, she falls apart. But she manages to get herself back to regular space where they can bury him in, in honor with others who have fallen. And she had learned how to sing. I never forgot. Oh, yeah, their first meeting, he starts off in a tenor. And most sopranos can't stand tenors. I'm a soprano. And uh, <clears throat> so they have this as a running gag. So when she brings his body back uh, and he is laid to rest, she thinks of taps. And black space itself echoed back the song the ship sang. Wow. Well, I had a lot of veterans say, hey, that was great. And um, when American Library Association called to say that they were giving me a lifetime achievement, they were doing it for the Pern books, but also for the ship who sang. And I burst into tears and had to hand the phone to my daughter. I said, Yay, Dad, this is for you. And that's the background of it. We, we once, I, I once had the honor of reading The Ship Who Sang with Mom because you can't actually read that aloud by yourself in all honesty and finish it because you'll just be a little limp rag on the floor someplace. Uh, and we were reading it at Brighton, yes, Brighton for the BBC. And Mom was very thrilled because she noticed that the, the veteran cameramen at the end of it were wiping tears from their eyes. And <laughs> yeah. this story really grabs. It's a, it's a beautiful but, story. Um, I was writing just as people were coming back from WW2, and they had had a lot of emotions. Some of them they hadn't been able to talk out. And uh, so I put emotion in the story as a deliberate tool, um, and it worked. Anne, you, you've been in the science fiction publishing business for 50 years? Um, 53. 53 years? Okay. Started published. Freedom of Race was in '53, wasn't it? Yeah. Okay. Uh, tell us how it's changed. I, it must. Have, it's been transformed. Tell us how, and for well, you at least. Yeah. You know, um, well, people say, "Do you have trouble with the editors?" And I said, "No, I have more trouble with the readers who don't think women can write science fiction, but I can and do." And uh, I had a lot of help from editors and other writers. Uh, we are a helpful group. Uh, and I was just hitting the right subjects for people who wanted to read science fiction and get away from it all. Certainly get away from uh, coming back home to what wasn't really a home anymore. And it was luck, just sheer luck that I picked that as a tool. And how for you, though, has it changed? I mean, when you started, was it it must have been different for you to publish your stories and see have people react. I guess, as yeah. you said, people couldn't believe that a woman could write. <laughs> <laughs> could and, write science fiction. We can write anything else. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh. Murder, suspense. But now uh, women, I think, are... Do you dominate science fiction? Good heavens, no. <laughs> no? No. I, no? No, no. There are some there are some very good and amazing women writer uh, writers out there, and I would say that women are certainly actively encouraged and not discriminated against. But I'd say I don't know. It's either fifty fifty or sixty forty. It's still predominantly men. 
But I think more women make a living out of it yeah. than the guys who must have another uh, breadwinning source. One of the things that's interesting about your books is that they appeal to a wide age range. I mean, uh, yeah. I, I, I'll confess, I read, <laughs> read it at uh, like 11 or 12, the, the first one, the first Pern book. And so I'm wondering, when you write, do you think about your audience, or do you just think about communicating purely what you're doing? I think about getting down as interesting a story as I possibly can. And every now and then something happens outside my office that I can include. And uh, Do you do much editing, self-editing? To, yes, to keep, I do a lot. To keep, to keep things within, uh, I mean, so that your novels are appealing to, to young adults, appropriate to young adults? or Yes, I do watch that when I'm writing for YA. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I, sorry, I, I found that when I was looking at Pern and trying to understand it more, it seemed that there was a, there's sort of a contract with the reader on Pern, which is that the bad guys will get what's coming to them, guaranteed, sooner or later, and that the good guys won't have really terrible things happen to them along the way. Uh, and the other thing that, that occurred um, that I noticed was you, you write any intense scene uh, in such a way that a younger person totally doesn't get it. Uh, but an adult who goes back and rereads it will go, oh, my goodness, I didn't realize that was in the book. And my hat's off to you, and I keep on doing my best to emulate <laughs> you on that one. That's a good boy. Thank you. <laughs> you moved to Ireland 30 years ago. Yeah. Why? It was... 3,000 wet miles away from my ex-husband. The schools were good, and I had two young children to educate, and my mother came with me. Well, there was also the, the Charles Hawhey uh, oh, yes. artist tax exemption, yes, which was the was, big draw. was the big draw. I'm not taxed on my writing income in Ireland, but they've set a level on what you can earn untaxed, and you'd have to pay above that. I'm guessing you're paying above that at this point in the, yeah. in the process. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about your house. It, it's based on your writing, isn't it? No, it was paid for by the dragons, <laughs> which is why I call it Dragon Hole. And I designed the floor plan myself because I wanted certain things, like a big kitchen. And I, I had so many one-bum kitchens in Ireland. That, I mean, the facilities for women, they have improved, but when I got there, they had sort of a closet with a stove and a fridge in it and a sink. And you really could do everything you needed to do in the kitchen by just turning around. But that isn't my idea of a kitchen. So I have a big kitchen. It's 18 by 16. And I have a big lounge because we do a lot of entertaining. I gave my daughter's reception, not reception, her engagement party in my house. And I used to have a um, young riders, Golden Saddles Young Riders competition. And we give the uh, party before the event at the house, and I have six bedrooms. And a gate sculpted by a famous science fiction artist. Yes, yes, Tell indeed. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, well, when I was in London, I saw a marvelous figure of a man riding, and he is angled back and shooting over the butt of the horse, a uh, Scythian warrior. And it had so much action and emotion in it that I bought the... Uh, uh, sculpture, and met uh, uh, Vladimir Ivanov, and he came 
he wanted to come to Ireland, and I arranged it, and he and his very charming wife came, and he made more sculptures. He made a um, three-day event horse rider about to take, jump off a, uh, over a fence, and he's got such movement in the horse. He, oh, he, he deals in metal, and to get that much fluidity in the, in the metal is incredible. And I think I have four statues by uh, Volodya. And then he said, I should have a dragon on the gate. And I said, yes, but the ones I saw were not right. So he made me some that were right. And there's a dragon on each side of the gate. And that, thus does one enter the house of <laughs> Anne McCaffrey, international best-selling author. We've been speaking with Anne McCaffrey and her son, Todd. They're both the best-selling authors. Their new novel is Dragon's Fire. Thank you for speaking with me, Anne You're and Todd. You're quite welcome, Rick. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.